Welcome to Reimagining Atlantis. My name's Tori, and I'll be your host. My friends, welcome back. I'm pretty sure I've recovered from being sick. For the first week, my throat was pretty sore. And then the second week, I think I was coughing more than I could speak. Yes, I did take a couple of COVID tests, and I was negative. It just appeared to be some nasty little head cold. Prior to being sick, I had three episodes ready to go, which gave me a little bit of breathing room to recover. However, most times when I don't record, I'm busy researching and writing and preparing the episodes. This time I had none. However, while I was sick and had very little to entertain myself, my mind went on a wander, and my little epiphany, or at least my fever dream question, is, according to ancient Greek naming conventions, people were often named after the city of where they're from, as well as potentially their parents' names. So, ancient Phoenicia had a city named Sidon, right? So what if somebody was from Sidon? What if somebody was a son of Sidon? What if somebody was Poe of Sidon? Could it be that Poseidon is just Greek for son of Sidon? Or person from Sidon? I don't know, but that's what I'm going to be thinking about for the next 50 years. My head is constantly juggling around these crazy ideas, and I'm just in childlike fascination with this ancient culture. I'm not quite sure how this next culture that I'm going to talk about fits and all of this, but it feels right. Diodorus makes it clear that the fate of the Atlanteans are forever entwined with the Libyan Amazons. Here's my latest guess. There was a Lake Triton by modern-day Tunisia, and that lake was connected by a river that ran from the west, so probably like the Atlas Mountains, to the east and emptied into it. That lake would be called Lake Triton. That river would be called River Triton. Now, anyone who's ever been around a river or a lake knows that the surrounding area gets a little squishy, right? So that would probably be our marsh tritonus. Now, if we were to follow our river triton towards our west, my guess is somewhere around the Atlas Mountains is our source for this once river, maybe a spring. I'm from Florida, and... They have these beautiful, natural, cold springs there, and they pump out millions of gallons of water per second. I mean, they can just pump out water. So it's easy for me to be able to picture a natural spring pumping out water and creating these rivers that could run these long distances. Presumably, it could also go another way, right? Like it could go from that source to the west as well. So that river Triton that has some form of a source 
also at a lagoon. And that would be the same lagoon that Jason went to when him and the Argonauts actually had to carry the ship across the desert for 12 days. And they arrived at the lagoon Tritonus. Now that lagoon was located by the Garden of the Hesperides. The Garden of the Hesperides is now a World Heritage Site of the archaeological site of Lyxis, which is located in modern-day Morocco. Now from here, that lagoon, I believe, is partly cut off. I think it would have continued and emptied into a lake, like a lake of Atlas. That lake of Atlas was probably divided with a promontory or like a large sandbar. I also can't help but notice some of the similarities of the Libyan Amazons to another strong woman who I'm going to mention today. She founded this wonderful new city. We've come to know it as Carthage. Let me know if you see the similarities too, or if I'm just having my own confirmation bias. To accomplish this, I'm going to use the help of the following authors. Plato, a classical Greek intellectual and school headmaster, who is our primary source for Atlantis. The dialogues of Atlantis were written around 360 BCE. Diodorus, a classical Greek scholar and historian, who set out to create an encyclopedia of history. He died roughly around 120 BCE. Virgil, a Roman author, known for writing the Aeneid, living roughly around 45 BCE. Junius Justinus, also known as Justin, he was a Roman historian, a Latin writer who lived under the Roman Empire. And of course, I've used the help of modern-day Wikipedia, who is contributed to by multiple very smart people from around the world. Near where Herodotus claims Lake Tritonus was located, a vast new city was built and became the most powerful city in the area and was ultimately Rome's primary adversity. However, before Rome rose to power, there was a story about the formation of Carthage by Queen Alicia, commonly referred to as Dido. According to legend, there was a king of Tyre who had two children named Dido and Polygmion. When this king died, he left the kingdom of Tyre to be ruled by both of his children equally. However, the people wanted Polygmion to be the sole ruler even though Polygmion was a very young boy. Dido ended up marrying her uncle, who was a priest of Heracles Melcourt and second-in-command within the kingdom of Tyre. Priest Acrobus, Dido's uncle-husband, had a vast fortune and he had it secretly buried. When King Polygmion tried to acquire his uncle-slash-brother-in-law's wealth, he had him killed when he was unsuccessful. Dido was heartbroken and wanted to leave Tyre, but she needed her uncle-husband's money 
that was hidden away. So Dido expressed desire to move into King Polymion's palace, and once she was there, she ordered all of that hidden money to be thrown out to sea as an offering to his spirit. Except, crafty Dido switched the bags of gold with bags of sand, and took off with the money and a small entourage by boat. So you remember the rules of ancient sea travel. You didn't want to go too far from shore, and you needed to dock for just about anything. You know, to sleep or to eat or to use the bathroom. Think of a modern day car trip. We want to stay on our roads, not get too far from our rest stop. We don't want to go off on roads that aren't traveled, right? So it's along the same lines, only if you go too far out, you know, Poseidon lives out there. So their very first stop was at this small island of Cyprus. And there they picked up a priest of Zeus and about 80 exiled (coughs) working women. Eventually Dido and her followers arrived on the coast of North Africa on a peninsula on modern day Tunisia. When they landed, Dido asked that local king, who was a king of a Berber tribe, and his name was Arbus, for a small bit of land for some temporary reprieve. Right, like they docked, but they were like, hey, I like it here. Maybe maybe we could, you know, set up some tents. What you think, man? She ended up begging him for a spot, but no better than what could be encompassed by an oxide. Once they agreed, Dido ended up cutting that oxide in teeny tiny strips, and she sewed the ends together as to make up enough to encircle an entire hill, which came to be known as Byreza, which is Greek for oxide. Fun fact, in modern mathematics, there's this problem called the isoprometric problem, and it's the enclosing of a maximum area within a fixed boundary. It's often referred to as the Dido problem. Anyway, they decided to make this their new home, and many of the local Berbers joined this new settlement, naming the place Kart Hadshit, meaning New City. Aeneas from Virgil's Aeneid, he claims that after the fall of Troy, he arrives at this new city and Dido and him fall in love. Aeneas was the sole survivor of Troy, and he was the son of the goddess of love, Aphrodite, and Prince Anaxius, who was the first cousin to King Priam. And King Priam was the ruler of Troy during the Trojan War. Just in case you guys haven't watched, you know, like Troy, the movie, or the series, or just about anything that references it. Since I talk about the Trojan War a lot, I should eventually do a brief summary. I remember the light bulb going off for me when I realized that, hey, these ancient gods that I heard about were alive during the Trojan War. Like, they were active. So it wasn't that long ago. I mean, granted, the Trojan War was pretty long ago, but like... It wasn't as long as we're led to believe. Anyway, so back to Livia, the king of the Berber tribe, King Arborus, demanded that Dido become his wife. 
or he would eventually wage war on Carthage. There are some interesting details about King Arborus that pull my mind strings and I can't quite figure it out. In the Aeneid, King Arborus is referred to as, quote, a son of Jupiter Ammon by a raped Gargamantian nymph, and he's referred to as a native king of Maxitani or Moritani, depending on the sources. In translation, King Arborus could mean King of Mauritania, and his mother was the Gargamantian tribe and was raped by Zeusamon. Jupiter Ammon, Zeusamon, Baalamon are all generally viewed as the same deity. So that would be the Greek god Zeus for clarification. Anyway, back to the story. Dido decided that she would pull a princess bride and shout, DEATH! First, So, she built a funeral pyre, and she climbed on top and announced that she would fulfill the will of the people and join her husband while she plunged his sword deep into her gut. After this self-sacrifice, Dido was deified and was worshipped as long as Carthage endured. Here's a snippet from the Aeneid. No, gentle youth, in Libyan lands you are, a people rude in peace and rough in war. The rising city, which from far you see, is Carthage, an Atyrian colony. Phoenician Dido rules the growing state, who fled from Tyre to shun her brother's fate. The ancient site of Carthage is located on the edge of North Africa, that is now Tunisia, on the eastern side of Lake Tunis. This prime location within the Mediterranean controlled trade from the eastern to the western Mediterranean. It had inlets to the sea to the north and the south, which made it a master of the Mediterranean's marine time trade. All ships crossing the sea had to pass between Sicily and Carthage, affording it great power and influence. Ancient Carthage had an entry canal for boats that approached a circular walled harbor. Around 200 BCE, another rectangular harbor was built. Carthage's main port contained two linked harbors, with a common entrance from the sea. Its main port was 21.3 meters wide, or 0.13 stadia, which could be closed with iron chains. The circular harbor was for storing the city's massive navy of 220 warships. The rectangular harbor was for mercantile trade. There was a central island that was located within the circular harbor, which rose to a considerable height, allowing for Carthaginian commanders to observe what was going on out in sea, while approaching ships had no clear view of what lay within the city. Carthage was a city of glittering palaces and luxury houses, lived in by the rich merchant classes. The city had a huge necropolis, or cemetery, religious area, marketplaces, council houses, towers, and it even had a theater. And it was divided into four equally sized residential areas with the same layout. Their townhouses rose to about six stories high and they were along narrow streets. Each house was built around a central courtyard 
and had its own cistern along with a rudimentary drainage system. Their private estates on the countryside were large houses and gardens back to an extensive plantations that benefit from the complex irrigation systems. Herds of cattle and flocks of sheep pastured on the surrounding plains. The Carthaginian religion was based on Phoenician religions, and it was a form of polytheism. Religion in Carthage involved human sacrifice to the principal gods Baal and Tanit. The Greek gods Demeter and Persephone and the Roman goddess Judo were later adopted in the religious patterns of the Carthaginians. The ancient sanctuary of the goddess Tanit, named Tophet, was a high place designated for the sacrifice of children to the gods. Urns have been unearthed containing ashes of more than 20,000 boys aged between 2 and 12, sacrificed by the Carthaginians in the 8th century BCE. I can't help but to notice the similarities between the formation of Carthage and this quote from Diodorus about the Amazons. The Amazons were on an island, which, because it was in the west, was called Hespera. So the island was called Hespera, which was kind of cool, right? Their home lay near Ethiopia, and that mountain, called by the Greeks, Atlas. Atlas, which is the highest of those in the vicinity, impinges upon the ocean. By the shore of the ocean, which surrounds the earth, there lay a marsh. In the marsh, named Tritonus, after a certain river Triton, which emptied into it, is where the Amazons made their home. They founded, within the marsh Tritonus, a great city which they named Chernosos after its shape. I also can't help noticing that only boys seem to have been sacrificed to the gods. The date of the founding of Carthage is around 825 BCE. This would be roughly 400 years after the Trojan War, and very much during the Bronze Age Collapse, or also known as the Greek Dark Ages. The period of time of around 1150 BCE to 750 BCE, all writing and recording seem to have stopped suddenly from many advanced cultures from all around the Mediterranean. The reason for this is really unknown, but is believed to be a combination of disease, drought, famine, and wars. Interesting enough, the Phoenicians were a culture who were least affected and went on to create many colonies throughout the Mediterranean. Just for clarification, shortly after the Trojan War, the Mycenaean Greeks, or Achaeans, just disappeared. This phenomenon was not limited to just the Bronze Age, but to the Hittites as well. And the Hittite Empire, Hattusa, which was the capital, was located significantly inward. So it's really unsure as to why that would collapse as well. This would be the same empire that encompassed ancient day Troy. If you think it was just limited to those two warring nations, the Hittites and the Greeks, you would actually be surprised to know that it was also the Syrian Empire and Babylonian Empire as well as the Egyptians got hit pretty bad too. Egypt survived, 
but barely. They had a war with the Sea Peoples, and it was pretty well documented during the reign of Ramses II in Renimfta, and their superpower was decimated. I plan on dedicating an entire episode to the Sea Peoples, but for now, we're talking about what happened after all the major empires in the Bronze Age just suddenly collapsed. The Phoenicians were a master-building seafaring peoples, and they began to branch out and colonize throughout the Mediterranean. They developed a form of writing that was more similar to ancient Semitic languages within Canaanite. There's also a word that you've come to know, like Phoenix, which variably meant Phoenician person, but it could also mean Tyrian purple, crimson, or date palm. Homer used it with each of these meanings. There was also a prominent figure that would consult with Achilles named Phoenix as well. The mythical bird who rises from their ashes has the same name, but it's only probably loosely associated with these people. If the Phoenicians had the ability to name themselves, they would probably call themselves Canaanites. They had a form of writing that was eventually adopted by the West, and we still use it, mostly, to this day. They also have an early form of writing called Linear Script A, but it is from the Semitic languages, not the unknown Minoan languages. The Phoenician Early Bronze Age is largely unknown. The two most important sites are Biblios and Sidon, although as of 2021, well over a hundred sites remain to be excavated, while others that have been have yet to be fully analyzed. So it's also important to know that this was the Greeks that gave them the names of Biblos and Sidon. Biblos lends its name to Bible or Biblioteca, Sidon, which was a seafaring city which could have lended its name to a Greek god, for example, Poseidon. By the mid-14th century, the Phoenician city-states were considered quote-unquote favored cities to the Egyptians and were under Egyptian rule. By the 10th century BCE, Tyre rose to become the richest and most powerful Phoenician city-state, particularly during the reign of Harem I. During the rule of the priest Ithobaal, Tyre expanded its territory north as far as Beirut and into part of Cyprus. This unusual act of aggression was the closest the Phoenicians ever came to forming a unitary tutorial state. Once this realm reached the largest tutorial extent, Ithobal declared himself king of the Sidonians, a title that would be used by his successors and mentioned in both Greek and Jewish accounts. The late Iron Age saw the height of the Phoenician shipping, mercantile, and cultural activity, particularly between 750 BCE and 650 BCE. The Phoenician influence was visible in orientation of Greek culture and artistic conventions. Among other most popular goods were fine textiles, typically dyed with Tyrian purple. Homer's Iliad, which was composed during this period, references the quality of Phoenician clothing and metal goods. So now we're full circle. The secondary rise of Greek culture, come to be known as the Classical Era, started making its comeback around 750 BCE. 
Homer, being the traveling performer, would sing songs of the Trojan War and sing of the gods across any tavern who would take him. Around 650 BCE, Solon made a trip to Egypt to figure out what happened to their past. They had these beautiful structures and statues, but little stories to show for it. I can't help but think that the Egyptian priest was chastising Solon in the following quote, Oh Solon, Solon, you Hellenes are never anything but children, and there is not an old man among you. I mean to say that in mind you are all young. There is no old opinion handed down amongst by ancient tradition, nor any science which is honorary with age. And I will tell you why. There have been, and will be again, many destructions of mankind, arising out of many causes. The greatest have been brought about by the agencies of fire and water, and other lesser ones by innumerable other causes. Now, this has the form of a myth, but really signifies the declination of the bodies moving in the heavens around the earth, and a great configuration of things on earth which recurs after long intervals. At such times, those who live upon the mountains and in dry and lofty places are more liable to destruction than those who dwell by rivers or on the seashore. And from the calmality of the Nile, who is our never-failing savior, delivers and preserves us. When, on the other hand, the gods purge the earth with a deluge of water, the survivors in your country are all herdsmen and shepherds who dwell on the mountains. But those who, like you, live in cities are carried by rivers into the sea. Whereas in this land, neither then nor at any other time, does the water come down from above on the fields, having always a tendency to come up from below, which for the reason traditions preserved here are the most ancient. I can't help but to feel that Athens may have had a flood, and all of their smart people who lived in the city were carried out into the sea. The ones who remained were nothing but sheep and herdsmen, and they had no ability to write. Now usually, it would be those folks that lived in the mountains that would be the ones that would be destroyed. However, this last particular deluge, it focused on the cities and wiped out all of the smarter people who could write and maintain notes. What do you think? Thank you so much for continuing to listen. Your support means everything to me. If you want to help make this podcast grow, please subscribe and tell just one other person about this podcast today. We are each our own hero in this story we call life. That means one person has the power to change everything. Who is the one person you tell today, hero? Let's help keep Atlantis alive, or at least reimagined. A new episode will be released every Thursday at 9 p.m. See you then. Wait, are you still here? Thank you. It's appreciated. Here's a clip for next week's episode. The Carthaginians tell us that they trade with a race of men who live in a part of Libya 
beyond the Pillars of Hercules. On reaching this country, they unload their goods, arrange them tidily along the beach, and then, returning to their boats, raise a smoke. Seeing the smoke, the natives come down to the beach, place on the ground a certain quantity of gold in exchange for the goods, and go off again into a distance. The Carthaginians then come ashore and take a look at the gold, and if they think it presents a fair price for their wares, they collect it and go away. If, on the other hand, it seems too little, they go back aboard and wait. The natives come and add to the gold until they are satisfied. There is perfect honesty on both sides. The Carthaginians never touch the gold until it equals in value that which they have offered for sale. And the natives never touch the goods until the gold has been taken away.